0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK.
2: This is a download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today, you can hear Open Country with me, Helen Mark.
1: People often say to you, live in a small island you must feel very constrained and I just don't see that I see a huge wilderness where you can lose yourself and not come across a person and it's a landscape that changes all the time so we're looking at it now at half tide and the tide's going to drop a bit further and on a big spring tide we can have a range here of up to 12 meters of tide so from where we're standing here we can walk two miles out to sea.
2: So I'm standing in the southeast corner of Jersey and I'm with Dominic Jones. You talk about this being a wilderness. It's a wilderness which is unveiled gradually as the tide ebbs away.
1: Yes, we're in uh, La Roque Harbour, which is one of the small harbours on the southeast coast of the island. To our east of the bay, the furthest point east will be uh, Gorey Castle, Montaugay, that tells its own history uh, from Norman times. And then the bay stretches right the way round to St Helier. And the whole area is a, is a Ramsar site, so the, an international. Uh, a wetland of, uh, of importance.
2: So we're going to follow the tide out and discover for this week's Open Country some of the, the stories that can be told in this landscape. Um, we'll see evidence of climate change and geological change, but most of all, man's place in this landscape, which new evidence has revealed goes back to this being the last stronghold of Neanderthals.
1: Yes, so as we stand here and as we walk out uh, to the tower across this landscape, we're going to pass an area where woolly mammoths used to roam and Neanderthals were were hunting those woolly mammoths.
2: That's such a joy in your face when you're (laughs) saying that. And we are in a bay, but we really must paint this picture that it's not a a, a flat sand. What we're looking out uh, as the tide ebbs away are great rocky outcrops.
1: Three hours ago, there would have been nothing but that tiny tower with the tide at the level of it. On the horizon. On then. the horizon. And then as the tide drops, the landscape just appears out of the sea.
2: Jersey almost like doubles in size, I've heard said, when the tide is out. It does.
1: If you look at some of the satellite pictures, um, you'll see a small island surrounded by sea, and then at low tide, it opens up into this vast, vast expanse.
2: What is our challenge now as we stand here, Dominic?
1: I've I've got to walk you out to the tower. It's a dangerous area, it's it's an area with uh, strong tidal currents and you need a lot of local knowledge, true local knowledge that's been passed on over the years. Maybe those Neanderthal hunters have passed down the knowledge to us over the the years. You have to be a registered guide and you have to have a test to be able to take people out. And the, the test that we have as guides is we're taken out to the tower and we, we stay there until about three o'clock in the morning and then we're all turfed out with no torches in the middle of the night with a compass and told to get back to shore.
2: So we leave the sand, we cross a um, broad stretch of shingle and now in a way we're coming on to a mix of both here and we have very good company with us, Dominic. We have Bob Tompkins who, um, well, a lifelong... Passion. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you said that for this particular landscape and we're going to explore some of the things that you've been doing some incredible survey work in.
3: Yes, the, these days on the spring tides, my wife and I spend probably half our week out here because we're currently doing a, a survey of the, the big flood gullies that we have here. And it's it's a unique environment that's it's not found anywhere else. You've got rock pools, but these are not rock pools. These are flood gullies.
2: And we've also got Mike Stentiford... It would be, hello, Mike, a bird watcher. Indeed, yes,
0: an all-round sort of hat-wearing bird watcher, yes, indeed.
2: So if you see anything as we go along, I know know there's a gull or two perched on the rock over there, Mike. We're maybe not so interested in them. I believe there's lots of other very interesting things come to use uh, this place. We're heading down gullies. So, Bob, that's your field, isn't it?
3: We're surveying simply because... uh, Effectively, it's, it's like diving an in intertidal area. The, the, the species that you find here are the sp- same species that you find offshore if you were going to be scuba diving.
2: You mean in deeper water? In deeper water, You find yes. them in these, well, we might call them rock pools, but they are much more impressive than they, that.
3: Yes, <laughs> they are. The two big gullies are, one is just on a kilometre long and the other one's very close to a, a kilometre and a
1: half long. Mike's just spotted a, an egress, I think. Was <laughs> it the call that attracted
0: you first of all, Mike? It was, <laughs> it was quite it, shrill, wasn't it? Um, They're common terns. Um, we have an offshore reef, Lees Ekraho, just the uh, uh, east, of east of us here. And a small colony of common terns they breed there every year. And I noticed that one of them flying over actually carrying food. So it's a long way to go, but uh, <laughs> obviously that's their territory. We're feeding their young. Uh, we've we've we'll just stopped.
2: stopped, and we've clouded the waters a little bit. But that's actually, that's if we just hold still for a moment <laughs> or two, it will reveal again.
1: Right.
3: Um, Do you see the, this, this orangey yeah. mass? Here? Oh yeah. Right. This is this is a sponge, and these these gullies are actually full of a whole range of different sponges. It's can I uh, touch just to yeah, see yeah, what it feels like? It's,
2: actually, it's, it's, well, it's quite firm. Yeah, yeah yeah yeah. It feels like a good strong. Sponge that we would use washing yes. dishes. For washing. That's...
3: Yeah, well, it's obviously in the same family, but this is not uh, a plant. This is, this is an animal. This is the this is natural effectively, it's a, a colony of animals, all right? And what they're doing is that they're filter feeding. They have a, a system of very tiny holes, like micropoles. And they they draw the water in through that and take the goodness out.
2: Look, tiny little crab. Yep. Thumbnail-sized crab. Yeah. Can um, you get that, Bob?
3: It's a small...
2: There we go. Well
3: done. (laughs) Lively little critter. It's a young um, green crab, uh, which is probably the most common of the crabs that we have out here. And we do have quite a range of them. It has a lovely Latin name called Carcinus minas. And they do have quite a mean attitude. (laughs) (laughs)
2: So we're about halfway towards Seymour's Tower in the distance there. But what I'm standing at is this um, strange metal structure which towers above my head. It's got ladders running from the bottom. There's seaweed wrapped around all the rungs. And you can climb up, up towards the platform at the top. Well, actually, it's, it's very high above my head. That's... Over 20 feet, Dominic, I think, isn't it? It's a
1: great view, but uh, if the tide was lapping at your feet, uh, this is a refuge tower, so if the tide was lapping at your feet and you were going up, your your immediate focus probably wouldn't be the view. It would be getting to safety up on that platform. And then the idea is you wave back to land and there are lots of eagle-eyed people living in the the houses on the shoreline who would spot you and call the inshore rescue or indeed might even paddle out on their kayak to uh, come and help you. I, I, I guess if you, if you didn't see the seaweed on the top of the tower, you wouldn't really believe that the tide was going to be there. So in six hours' time, we would be under 15 foot of water here, 20 foot of water if we were still on the ground.
2: We're getting more and more red seaweeds now, yes. aren't we? Yes, we so are. walking out. That's a
3: good observation. Uh, this is, this is a, a, almost like a traffic light system, if you like. In that when we're closer inshore, you you see that the the weeds themselves are a much brighter green like this ulva, the sea lettuce that we have Mm -hmm. here. Then as you move into the middle ground, you have the brown weeds and then you have the reds. Now the red is, if you're walking out on the beach system like this and you don't know the area, um, is a warning. uh, And it's a warning that you're going out into deep water. Um, and you know, if you don't know the area and you're trying to find your way back, and the and the weeds are becoming progressively darker red, you're walking the wrong way.
1: <laughs> Let me see. We just were, Mike just spotted a, a heron. Was it? Was uh, it a heron we spotted a, then? A, a grey heron. Grey yes, heron. Um,
0: They don't breed in Jersey. They they breed across the way on the normally coast. So. I always say if anybody does meet one on, uh, under these conditions, then you must speak to it in French and not in English <laughs> because they won't understand the words you're talking about. Um, but from the bird watchers' point of view, I would say that this area really kicks in from about October onwards, October through to March, literally thousands upon thousands of wading birds that come here. So it's a wonderful food store for, for birds here.
1: I've been standing here and seen a formation coming over the French coast. They're at the end of their trip from Siberia, and they touch down around you, and the cackling and the noise, it's like the excitement, we've arrived, and it's, we've, we're away from the snow <laughs> and the cold, and uh, we can stay here for the winter. It really is an extraordinary sight.
2: We've finally reached our tower, climbed up and into this place, built when... And the purpose
1: was for. So it was built in 1780, 1781, uh, just after the last French invasion. So the French actually landed on the beach where we walked from, and they marched into the Saint Helier, and there was the battle of Battle of Jersey, and the French were repelled, and they left. And then the British government built this as a fortification, but they were they were built in vain, or not, as the case may be, because um, there was never another invasion until. The Second World War, until the the Germans uh, invaded Jersey in uh, 1940.
2: And they took this tower? Uh,
1: There were 30,000 troops garrisoned in Jersey, nearly as many as the population that were still here, and the whole island was fortified. So back to shore you will see a lot of concrete structures that were built with modern German engineering, but then these old fortifications, including the Norman Tower, we can see out of the window here, the Norman Fort, Mm. uh, Gory Castle. That was uh, fortified by the Germans and used. And indeed, there were Germans garrisoned here in this in this tower. Just watch your heads.
0: Oh, oh. I have, yeah.
2: I have. Again, we are right there, Mike. Yep, I'm fine. Thank
1: you. There,
2: onto the roof. Onto oh the my roof.
1: Goodness. So the first thing we do when we normally arrive in the tower is we. Uh, um, put a flag up to show that we're in occupation, because, again, if the flag's not up and people see people at the tower from the shore, they assume that they need rescuing.
2: And here we are on the roof, and we turn round the other way, and Jersey just seems so far away, doesn't it? All the rocks and the gullies and the sand and the shingle that lie between between us and them. And we see um, a story both modern and immensely ancient,
1: so over here, just to the um, to the south of the tower, you can see one of those gullies that Bob described, but it's cut off. And the reason there is it's not a, an old riverbed that may have been an ancient watering hole from prehistoric times. And we found uh, flint artefacts when we've been walking in the water there, probably from hunters that were drawn to the area to hunt the animals there. So we're looking at this landscape and we can see evidence there of an, an area where our ancestors, our Neanderthal ancestors, were, were walking 200,000 years ago, maybe, maybe, who knows when it
4: was.
2: (laughs) (laughs) On the grass? Yeah. Oh, and then several more have just risen into the air. Oh. Oh. (sighs) That was wonderful. There was about seven or so took off from the the grassland here, up into the air, caught the draft, and then off, off they're whisked. Isn't that fantastic? And so you know, there's a gleaming black wings of of the bird. Now, what's that that chuff doing there, just on the ground? That one's foraging, so that one's looking for insects. So you can see with its long curved bill that it's probing into the into the grass and the soil, probably for crane fly larvae at the moment. We're open country, we're exploring the coastline of Jersey and I've come to the northern edge, in particular to Sorrel Point, where any visitor here has a very good chance of experiencing the flight of, well, a very rare bird. In fact, we now have a flock of them here. I'm with Dr. Glyn Young, who is a conservation biologist. You're with the Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust. And then Harriet Clark, you're the field assistant in the reintroduction of the chuff to Jersey.
5: So we're trying to restore the coastline for a whole variety of birds, and a lot of that is to just reduce the cover of bracken here, either through grazing with sheep or through encouraging farmers to farm some of these fields again. One of the birds that's missing is the red-billed chuff, been missing 100 years.
2: It's a member of the cruel family. Yeah, so it's um, it's quite a small corvid. Um, It's about the size of a jackdaw, um, but it's got red legs and a red, long, curved bill that distinguishes it from the others. And very rare. Yeah, and it's very rare in the UK. Um, In England, you only find it around Cornwall, um, and there's population along the coast of Wales and up the west coast of Scotland, but generally they're not doing so well
5: we're desperately trying to uh, make sure they don't disappear.
2: And what have you done to do that then? This well, what, reintroduction.
5: What we did here with these chuffs is we've taken birds bred in captivity principally from Paradise Park in Cornwall and we've brought them over to Jersey partly to breed up some more here in Jersey but also to release directly into the wild.
2: Look over our heads, the the ones that are are free and 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 wild now. <laughs>
5: That's a good sight. Isn't
2: that a good sight?
5: And also, if you think that 15 of those 16 birds you can see were born in captivity.
2: And it's the 16th, as it were, that's the real special treat for you?
5: Yes. (laughs) 16th one is Dusty, and Dusty was hatched this year in the quarry. The staff there at the quarry who have taken really special care over them and, and love the birds being in their buildings with them. And they christened it Dusty because... It can get dusty in those buildings.
2: (laughs) We're actually now very close to the flock which have landed on this um, open, very short grassland um, cliff top. And they are all just furiously feeding, probing the ground. And the reason that we can get this close is because actually we're ducking down behind a gorse bush. Could I borrow your... Yeah, of course. I'll borrow your binoculars, Harriet. And then I can see... Oh, yes. Straight away, that flash of red beak, red leg. With the sun's just come out now, you get that beautiful sheen of their black feathers. That group is Dusty and its parents. The three there. So, there they are. Parents and Dusty behind, possibly up in the air, heading out across the top of the cliff into the open sea, swirling round. You know, constant changing formation. They're coming closer above our heads now, black profile against the blue sky. It's a wonderful call in the air, isn't it, Glenn? It's beautiful. And what we're witnessing is the first wild chuff to be born in Jersey for over 100
4: years. That was great! The sediments that make up this cliff here accumulated from at least 120,000 years ago. And what really jumps out of you is you've got this big line of rounded boulders about a metre and a half up. The sand is very wet at the base, but I can
2: reach out and I can touch this boulder line. You can feel it, that rough texture of the granite, embedded in hundreds (laughs) of tonnes of sediment.
6: (laughs) Very soft, sandy sediment that's rising up above us. Look, it stains your hand. 125,000-year-old beach.
2: This is Portolet Bay? yep, that's right. And I'm with Dr Becky Scott um, at the British Museum and Matt Pope of University College London Institute of Archaeology. Now, we've got a tantalising glimpse into the ancient... Past and man's use of the landscape then when we were walking out to Seymour Tower. But to get a clearer, a deeper understanding of that, I've come to spend some time with you two.
6: Well, we've come to Jersey every summer for the past six years. We're an archaeological project drawn from a number of different departments investigating not only the deep past of this landscape, going back perhaps up to 300,000 years, but also that landscape that you were exploring out to Seymour Tower, what lies beneath the sea.
4: What's so exciting about working here is that we're right on the tip of what's an inaccessible, vanished landscape because it's now underneath the sea. You know, go back 60,000 years, 180,000 years, you're back in a cold period, a glacial period, and the sea that we can see in front of us would be miles back as as the global waters of the oceans are locked up in sort of expanded polar ice caps and, and glaciers. So actually in front of us you'd have an exposed landscape, which is somewhere that we struggle to explore today. But actually, this island gives us a little key into looking out into that landscape. So Jersey
2: is very important in trying to develop the story into the deep past. I think
6: we've got two things coming together on Jersey. One of them is that Jersey has a rich concentration of archaeology because it's an island now, surrounded by sea, But in a real sense, even with the sea level lowered, it's a topographic island. It's going to draw the eye, people are going to make a beeline for it, so we get a concentration of activity. All the hunting may have taken place out there below the sea level, but here's the place where you've got the caves, you've got the fresh water, you've got the habitation sites.
2: And you're talking about which peoples?
6: Early Neanderthals, later Neanderthals, and then at some point in... One of these cliffs or one of these caves here—the point where Neanderthal populations in the region are replaced by our own species, modern humans.
2: Now, what we're going to do is take a bit of a walk away from Portollet to La Cotte de Saint Brelard, mm-hmm. and we're going there because because it's
6: the most important, richly provided Neanderthal site in Northwest
2: Europe. Let's go. <laughs> So with Matt and Becky, we've come up to the cliff edge, but here I have a view out to sea, and there is a great squall of grey rain rushing towards us. So what we're going to do is, and we can thank the German occupation for this, is we can shelter in one of their bunkers. Oh.
4: Look at that
6: coming in there. That's a really fine squall.
2: <laughs> what would this have been used for? Because well. there
4: are, there are um,
2: rail tracks coming up to the back wall. Well, we're not
6: great experts on German concrete, but it looks as if there was either a, a gun installation here or even a searchlight that was on rails and would have been moved backwards and forwards or even to take the recoil of the gun. But, of course, these whole headlands around here are very heavily defended um, by the Germans during the Second World War. and We're very close to a big battery at Noirmont Point, which was part of a heavily defended naval artillery battery.
2: Wow. We shall shelter here in the peace and quiet.
4: So we're just leaning over the headland now, and you can just see down there to your right is is the top of this rock arch, and that that's the North Ravine, under which was stratified all the early Neanderthal archaeology from Lechot. So the bone heaps came from underneath that rock arch, and and also. Stone tools dating back to at least 230,000 years ago. But also below us, these deposits here um, are later in date and we've been working at the base of these, sampling. is giving us a handle on the date of the older deposits which were chunked out by quarry workers at the turn of the last century. So what we've been able to do really through sort of keyhole surgery is get a handle on the final Neanderthal occupation. It's so
2: wild, and the waves are crashing against the rocks below, but um, let's just take a few steps back.
4: It is windy!
6: (laughs) Because Neanderthals are coming here on and off throughout this whole period, we have a continuous record of their presence and their absence and their changes of behaviour, and there go the peregrines. (laughs) We might hear them coming over. Did you hear that?
2: Yeah, there they are there. Look at that, just lifting yeah. up on the, the draft.
6: They're the modern <gasps> predators of Lacotte.
2: <laughs>
6: Perfect hunting territory. And they're really good company.
2: Right over our heads. Look at that. Light and airy, but a killing machine. Oh.
6: Getting ready maybe to make a dive soon.
4: Well, this seems to be somewhere that people have come to again and again and again for over 200,000 years. So we see Neanderthals disappear from this site twice, associated with the bone heat, so it gets very, very cold. Neanderthals and all the other animals who are living in this landscape go extinct, but then they come back again. So there's something about this place and there's something specifically about Cotte and this headland that's drawing people back here time and time again. It's fascinating. What
2: finds were being made that helped you build this story? We have an archive of
6: over a quarter of a million artefacts spanning 200,000 years, maybe as many as 12 separate occupation horizons. So it's an incredibly deep sequence of intense archaeological material.
2: And those artefacts are, for example...
6: Well, they're predominantly stone tools and they're using a mixture of flint, which doesn't occur naturally here in any kind of good source. So that's probably being collected from submerged sources now underneath the seabed, but also local raw materials as well. And by looking at changes throughout um, the sequence in whether exotic raw materials are coming in or they're using local raw materials, we see them changing their reaction to that landscape over time.
2: How important is this very old
6: story for modern Jersey It's not something that you necessarily need to have in a museum because, in a sense, the island is a product of Ice Age processes. The beaches and the headlands are a product of those processes. And so just by enjoying this spectacular landscape, if you come armed with a little bit of knowledge, it's very easy to populate this landscape with ancient hunter-gatherers.
2: And through the discoveries you've made, you have the opportunity of seeing, visualising, when that change happened from Neanderthal to a modern human population. Yes, you can see that happening here at Lakot. That's what's astounding.
6: We know there would have been a time when the Neanderthal populations were replaced by modern humans. And anywhere in this region, if it's going to be preserved anywhere, it's going to be preserved in those sediments directly in front of us there.